0: The Bain Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, things from outer space take on the internet of things in a cage match that gets ugly. Ugh. The women of future's past were tough mothers indeed.
2: Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel.
1: And I'm Bain editorial assistant Christopher Rocchio. We have an in-studio interview with Robert Butner this time on the podcast. Bob stopped by the Bain offices to drop off some extremely cool promotional items for his upcoming science fiction novel, The Golden Gate. And while he was here, he sat down with us to talk a bit about his Orphan's Legacy series and about The Golden Gate, which is a near-future thriller set in San Francisco and deals with keeping the secret of Methuselah-like longevity out of the hands of bad guys and evildoers. That's coming up.
2: Yeah, it was a really good visit by... Bob, we had lunch together, and he... Did you get one of those uh, promotional... Uh...
1: <laughs> yeah, he gave me one of his coffee mugs. I missed him when he was at uh, at the brunch at DragonCon. I uh, must have been seated at a different table. Yeah, he
2: was sitting next to me. He also brought these, these car escape hammers that have um, the book title uh, inscribed on them, which allow you to cut your way out of a car that's gone off a bridge and um, break the window with the little tap hammer that's included in it. But what's really cool is that they are also wind-up flashlights. So um, if you went off into cold water that was really dark, you could wind up the flashlight really quick, you could see where you were, cut your seatbelt off, and uh, get out, and then presumably go and read The Golden Gate. I'm guessing that's all a bit of foreshadowing
1: for the book, too.
2: Well, it's really cool, and I'm, I immediately snagged one for my car. So, um, We also continue with the complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. That's all coming up. Now here's the news.
1: The September trade paperbacks are out, and these include a couple of very interesting short story anthologies that you really ought to check out. One is Women of Future's Past, edited by Christine Catherine Rush. Chris Rush has pulled together a host of really great stories that emphatically prove that women have been prime movers as authors, editors, and more in science fiction since the genre arose. Far from being a boys' club, science fiction is always an area where the contributions of women are not only welcome, but prove very lucrative. They
2: do indeed. Indeed.
1: Also out is Things from Outer Space, edited by Hank Davis. In space, no one can hear you scream. Which doesn't mean that anyone is safe because they're standing on the soil of planet Earth, either. A thing from outer space might just drop in and ruin your day. Yeah. What kind of awful things are there, and how might humans deal with them? Considering that possibility are masters of science fiction, including Robert Silverberg, David Drake, Sarah A. Hoyt, James H. Schmitz,
2: and John W. Campbell. And many more. Also, who else is uh, included in that anthology?
1: And our own podcast fill-in host, David Sherad, has a particularly scary and amusing story in there as well. Yes,
2: he does. Um, I think it has to do with cats, also. So look for that. Women of Futures Past, edited by Christine Catherine Rush, and Things from Outer Space, edited by Hank Davis, are now out at booksellers everywhere. <music> want well, to welcome Robert Butner to the podcast. Hello, Bob.
3: Uh, good afternoon, Tony. Great to be with you today.
2: So let me get you the pronunciation of your name, your last name, correct, because I get asked it all the time.
3: It's Butner if you think about uh, if you think about uh, a beauty queen and think about the antithesis of one which is me, then that will help you get the front end of the name right.
2: <laughs> so it's kind of like Ferris Bueller is one of that
3: That's a good one.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, Robert Butner is the author of the award winning five book Orphans Series and its successor, The Orphans Legacy Series, which is published by Bain where the main character is Jason Wanderer's son, our series, that is, Jason Parker. The Orphan's Legacy series includes Overkill, Undercurrents, and Balance Point. Now Bob has a new non-Orphan's Legacy book that will be coming out in January. That book is The Golden Gate. We thought since he was stopping by the Bane office, he's here today, in person. We might ask him to talk a bit about his work, the Orphan's Legacy series, and the new book. Um... So, Bob, you spent many years developing the orphan and the orphan's legacy universe. <clears throat> Your prose and storytelling have been compared to uh, to Heinlein more than once, which is high praise, I think. What is it about this setting that that brings out the Heinlein touch in you, or, or is it that it was uh, the Heinlein touch that brought you to this setting? What's
3: <laughs> well uh, of the
2: series, I mean.
3: <clears throat> well heinlein was uh, certainly as as with many uh people who write science fiction as well as many uh space scientists uh, heinlein inspired us uh, by the uh, his juvenile books and uh in particular i got started uh, got started reading those uh, at an early age and uh that i think i think if there's one reason that people tend to uh, uh, make that comparison, which, by the way, uh, full disclosure here, I think that comparing me to Heinlein is like comparing uh, uh, Chateau Mouton Rothschild to uh, dishwater. I mean, it's uh, it's flattering to me, but it's not uh, uh, it's hardly uh, hardly deserved. But at all events, I think uh, I think what is similar about the way that I write uh, and the way that uh, Heinlein wrote, and I suppose maybe that's what taught me uh, uh, how I write is the uh, there's a hopeful tone. there's an emphasis on uh, uh, on individuals uh, standing up taking responsibility for their actions. Uh, the uh, the role of of uh, females is uh, is much more on an equal footing than uh, I think uh, one might expect from someone of my generation to write, and uh, I think uh, I think it's just the fact that there is a character-driven focus to my work because I think that uh, I think that Heinlein knew and 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 I believe that. Uh, Fiction, effective fiction, is about what characters who you care about will do next and why.
2: What did, um, we were talking over lunch about how you, um, how you, how your life before kind of brought you to writing this sort of fiction. Um, you were in the service.
3: Uh, yeah, I was, uh, I was a military intelligence officer in the United States Army and, uh, actually, uh, didn't get to active duty until after the Vietnam war was over but I had some experiences in college with the uh the attitude of the american public toward uh toward the military uh during the vietnam era and
2: uh you were ROTC
3: yeah i uh yeah, my uh, commission was as a reserve officer uh, reserve ROTC officer uh in in military intelligence and uh and I uh, served uh, out that commission from 1973 through 1980, and uh, and one thing that I learned from that, I guess, was that uh, uh, that there needed to be uh, something said about the role of the military, uh, particularly after 9/11. And that was when my first novel actually uh, was was written, was in the months after 9/11, and it wasn't. An, Britain. I didn't even know there was a genre called or subgenre called military science fiction. I just knew that I'd read a couple stories. One by Robert Heinlein uh, called the, uh, called Starship Troopers, and one by Joe Haldeman uh, called The Forever War. Uh, Starship Troopers was written by Heinlein, who was an unapologetic cold warrior, uh, and it was uh, it was very. Uh, it reflected the military in in a tough but positive light. Uh, Joe Haldeman, who was a, uh, a conscripted uh, physics student uh, who uh, w- went to Vietnam and returned wounded in body and in spirit, and was scorned by uh, the country that had uh, had sent him there. Uh, Joe wrote a, a much. More cynical and classic, uh, The Forever War. And those two stories I thought missed the point a bit. Uh, I thought Heinlein was a little bit, uh, uh, was uh, a product, Heinlein and his book were a product of the time in which it was written, the Cold War. And uh, Joe's was uh, a Vietnam War book. And uh, those reflected different poles. And it seemed to me that the wars that we were about to embark on after 9-11 uh, were going to split the difference between those two. And that in any event, it was appropriate to say something positive about the grunts who were going to uh, serve and uh, and how we should treat them. And that was what drove the uh, the books and and the military uh, uh, slant of them.
2: So the first uh, the first novel that you uh, came out was called Orphanage, correct? That's,
3: uh, the... that's right. Yeah, that came out in uh, in late 2004, and it was a uh, it was actually very uh, very successful. Uh, made uh, made Barnes Noble's uh, top 50 paperback in its first two weeks of publication, which is. Uh, well, my editor was. My editor told me that that was very unusual, and uh, and that everybody had uh, at uh, at Time Warner had told her to uh, stop running up and down the hall and screaming uh, because it was uh, she was so pleased with it. In any event, um, yeah, that was. Um, uh, that that was the, that was orphanage and again it was it was a, a deliberate homage to both starship troopers and the forever war but it was uh it was written in a different time and reflected a different zeitgeist uh, as those two books did
2: yeah so um in the bane books we put out including uh overkill i guess is the first in the series um the character in Orphanage and subsequent books from that was J- was uh, Jason Wander, I believe his name. Right. As in, now, this is um, another Jason, Jason, and it's spelled with a Z, yeah. um, and there's a reason for that. Uh, Jason Parker. Um, who is he? Um, part of the novel is Jason discovering who he is and the overkill and where he comes from. And uh, he goes through somewhat of the same experience as his, his father did. Um, tell us about Jason's character, if you would.
3: Well, Jason's character, uh, I I wanted to preserve uh, one of the things that uh, that people very much liked about the Jason Wander books, the first five books, and that was uh, the first person voice of the uh, of the main character, who was a uh, a young man who was on uh, un- was thrown into the military. And, uh, and and came of age in the military. And I wanted to preserve that. But at the same time, I felt that the stories needed to go in a different direction. And, uh, and I also needed to have a vehicle that would allow me to introduce the viewpoints of other characters. One of the things that disappointed me about uh, the orphanage books was that because the enemy there was really an allegorical stand-in for basically the American view of the uh, the terrorist enemy that we were confronted with after 9-11, which was these face, faceless, literally faceless in the case of the, uh, the aliens in the book, uh, literally Faceless and com- totally incomprehensible people. You know why? Why? Why do these guys hate us? As the, as the uh, saying goes, and uh, and therefore, the alien presence remained inscrutable for five volumes, and uh, that only got cleared up in the in, at, in the very uh, at the very end of the last novel. So. I felt like there was more for me to say about alien intelligence and, uh, and what it would be like and uh, and how it might differ from us and what it might think of us. So that was uh, that was the the difference uh, and the reason for the difference in direction, even though the Jason Wander character and the Jason Parker character are in many ways similar.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, um, we do meet alien intelligence that we uh, get inside the head of, um, in the, in these, uh, books. And one of those is a Grezen, um, which is a a wonderful, (laughs) scary kind of, uh, alien that you've come up with. There's a great picture of one, I believe, on balance point. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. That, uh, that Kurt Miller did. I don't know if he got it as accurate as you wanted, but it's scary looking. Um, so, uh, I guess, uh, well, in the first book, uh, this is the one where Jason goes to the dead end, right? Correct. And uh, he meets this monstrous alien beast. What is a grezin?
3: Okay. Uh, a grezin, well, first thing I should say about a gre what a grezin is, in short, is a, an 11 ton, uh, six legged, uh, hairy sort of a beast with giant tusks. Uh, who is uh the the supreme apex predator uh on his planet uh, uh part of a very small race and uh and who uh, is part of a race that conceals from humanity that it is intelligent not only intelligent but telepathic and uh because they realize that these humans, as, uh, as small and, uh, and peculiar as they may be, are really pretty dangerous and pretty nasty little beasts. And uh, so the grezen, uh, that's where the grezen, that, that's in a nutshell what a grezen is. Uh, they, uh, they, don't, they don't play well with humans, and the humans generally get the short end of the stick. Um, it's they're compared to uh, uh, well, it's it, it's said that uh, they can uh, fight a, a, a main battle tank, an Abrams tank, which also happens to appear in the book. Uh, in uh, could could fight and defeat one with uh, with one of their six limbs tied behind their back, and that's essentially uh, that's an accurate description. But what I think is. More interesting is the provenance of the grevi- of the Greson. Uh, uh, Einstein said that uh, the genius uh, is uh, is really no diff- different than plagiarism. It's just that geniuses conceal their sources better. Well, I'm not a plagiarist, but I'll freely acknowledge that uh, that the grezin is modeled on a character that I uh, encountered when uh, when I was a kid when I was reading juveniles. And in particular, uh, a novel called The War Against the Rawl* by the, uh, the great A.E. Van Vogt. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in that uh, book, uh, which was actually, it's what they call a paste-up novel, The War Against the Rawl*, uh, a f- format that, uh, that Van Vogt actually invented. And the nature of the format was that you had a number of short stories, in some cases related short stories, in some cases unrelated short stories, and you tacked them together uh, into a novel uh, with some some connecting pieces. And the part of the War Against the Roll that I liked the best involved this alien race of uh, six-legged giant superior predators who actually were telepathic and uh, didn't want humans to know about it and uh, and i found that aspect of the story fascinating but unfortunately it was only a couple chapters so after you know 20 30 years i came back to it and uh, and wrote in all the parts that i thought uh, van vogt should have put in so that's how the grezen came to be, and, uh, and that's who he is.
2: Can you um, kind of give us, a, give us the setup for Overkill? So somebody that's just starting the series, what? Um...
3: Well, uh, I think I kind of have to tell you that uh, the, the universe that we're dealing with there is uh, subsequent, is not very far in, in the human future perhaps 150 years out, uh, but what? But there's been a, an enormous change, and that change was that uh, we were attacked by an alien race. Come to find out, actually, the alien race uh, had visited uh, Earth about 30,000 years ago and had found that primitive humans um, worked very well in certain uh, interstellar, uh, uh, job niches, and uh, took some of them away on ships thirty thousand years ago, and to other worlds and various worlds around the galaxy and the universe. And they, uh, the uh, humans, either got away or you know, like uh, like uh, rats crawling down the the hawser of a of a freighter. Uh, or were released on those worlds and uh, came to establish themselves by virtue of their superior intellect. And that gave me just a wealth of possibilities. Uh, you know, how would, how, would, how would humans have fared, for example, on a planet very much like Earth in the late Cretaceous? Uh, and if we came back 30,000 years later and took a look, what would things be like? Uh, and that, uh, and on the basis of that, uh, after this, this war is over and the humans have acquired the, from the aliens, the technology to go to these other, other worlds, about 500 of them, they, uh, uh, they find all kinds of things. In particular, though, the world where the Grezen is, is one that the aliens had never visited. So that's uh that's a bit of the setup i i'm not sure if that's as much as you want what's
2: jason doing there
3: well jason jason uh jason parker was actually is actually orphaned at birth uh, or and raised by the midwife who delivers him on one of those planets uh where well frankly it's an an allegorical stand-in for a totalitarian regime if you want to plug in uh, contemporary China or Stalinist Russia, you wouldn't be far off the mark. And uh, he is uh, raised by this midwife uh, on a planet uh, where it's uh, it's so overpopulated that it's a crime to be born, and newborns are unauthorized newborns are uh, are terminated at birth. So Jason uh, has grown up uh, in the shadows uh, his entire life. And uh, the only way you can get out of that is to, uh, is to become a mercenary. And then you can get off the planet and you can purchase through your service uh, a, a chance at a new life. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's the setup. Jason doesn't know his parents, uh, doesn't know how he got left there. Uh, and he sets out uh, and, and winds up winning his freedom uh, that, in that fashion and winds up working for a, uh, an, a, a tycoon, uh, an Earth tycoon. Uh, Earth tycoons are allegorical stand-ins for, for the ugly Americans that we all know too well as far as the rest of the universe is concerned. And, uh, and Jason uh, ends up working for that tycoon who uh, would like nothing better than to bag a grezen. And in order to bag that grezen, he, uh, he ha- brings with him to the planet where the grezen reside a, uh, an antique weapon, uh, specifically an Abrams M1A1 main battle tank and which Jason is familiar with from his mercenary service. So if that's a rather long setup, but there you are.
2: Well, Jason, you say that you... One of the things you like about Highline is that he he creates women characters who seem like actual people. Um, Tell us about Kit, who Jason uh, meets for the first time. And she she runs through the books. Uh,
3: She does, Uh, yeah. And... uh, clearly a kit is uh, is a uh, is the antithesis of Jason she's from a uh, a wealthy earth family um, she went to uh, she went to an ivy League uh, college she is also an idealist and uh, in fact her father served as a secretary of state at one time but so and she uh, she is actually in the military uh, when when Jason meets her she's working undercover um on uh, on dead end the planet where uh, where the grezen live because uh, it's people are starting to suspect that maybe the grezen are a lot smarter than they let on and indeed may be telepathic and uh So she is uh, supposedly a guide, but she is, in fact, an undercover operative. And as we find out in the later books, uh, she also has uh, a skill set that's far more traditionally military and uh, special ops kind of a skill set. She's a dead shot. She's a sniper. She's unapologetic about it because she only kills bad people. And, uh, And she's a tough cookie, too. So...
2: But he's all right so um, in earned occurrence the next book in the series Jason um, and uh, and kit uh, Jason's uh, sort of become Rick from Casablanca for a while on an asteroid but he is um, recruited to go to a Go to a rather totalitarian planet. Is this the one he's from, or where he was raised, or is this another? No, that's
3: another story. It's another planet. It's a planet that actually uh, that uh, was introduced in the uh, in the first in the in the first series uh, when when humans first started to to venture out and encounter their uh, uh, their uh, uh, other the the their offshoots the hum, human human offshoots on the other
2: technological structures on it also
3: yeah um, yeah uh, the uh, Yavid is the name of the planet on uh, uh, that is uh, most of undercurrents takes place on and that's an example of one of these planets where. The uh, the planet itself started out as being well quite a ways behind Earth. In fact, probably in the uh, uh, in the uh, uh, Paleozoic era, when uh, very little life on on, on the uh, on land other than there's plant life, but uh, little uh, little animal life on land, and uh, and then the humans are dumped in there, and over the course of time, they've developed. Uh, technology, roughly to the level of, uh, oh, the uh, uh, the dawn of the industrial revolution in in, uh, in on Earth, and uh, and they are uh, there's the, um, the the cultures the uh, that exist that have developed are uh, not entirely different from the kinds of uh, cultures you might find uh, developing on Earth. You've got uh, uh, belligerent and totalitarian cultures that are uh, oh, remind you a little bit of, uh, of uh, the Nazis. You've got uh, uh, benign dictatorships, or pardon me, benign monarchies that have uh, been suppressed by, by the warlike culture. And, uh, and it's into that that, uh, that mix that, uh, that Jason, I think that's an apt comparison to uh, Rick from Casablanca, uh, that uh, Jason is unwittingly thrust uh, for the simple reason that, uh, that, that Kit's gone missing, missing there. And, uh, and uh, they had been lovers, they have split up, and, uh, and he goes back uh, ostensibly because his bosses want him to do some some military intelligence work but in his mind he's he's going to save her.
2: And um, he's limited by the kind of technology that they have there and how he can fight.
3: Yeah, he... Uh, the, 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 in Which fact, is a cool aspect of the book. It, it is a cool aspect of the book and I should say uh, uh, armored vehicles have figured in the books, and, and part of the reason for that is that uh, uh, my dad was a tanker uh, during the Second World War, in fact, and he was uh, he was uh, spared from um, the invasion of North Africa because somebody decided that what we really needed were some smart guys to go and figure out how to drop tanks out of airplanes with parachutes, and so he stayed home to do that and uh as most people who are familiar with uh, the history of the second world war know the americans uh were were blooded uh in north africa in the north african campaign uh because they were very inexperienced and he he was very fortunate that uh that that didn't uh, he didn't go there anyway uh because of that i've always had a fascination with armored vehicles and that's why uh an, an abrams tank featured in um, in, under, in Overkill, and in Undercurrents, uh, the, uh, the featured old-fashioned technology are the, the original uh, World war one tanks uh, that have uh, developed in parallel uh, on, on that planet. And, uh, and they're uh, resurrected for use by uh, a rebellion that is going to uh, to overthrow the bad guys, and Jason is there to help with that.
2: Yeah. And last book in the series, uh, Balance Point, uh, we really meet the Grezen Then it's, a, and we get to understand what they are.
3: Yeah. Yeah, Balance Point, uh, again, I, I, as you said uh, I think once, it, it is, it's a lot of fun as a book. Uh, I should probably say that uh, uh, in this one, uh, Jason and Kit, uh, because the Cold War between, uh, between uh, um, the uh, totalitarian planet, not a, a technologically advanced totalitarian planet, where Jason was born, uh, and the United uh, and Earth uh, has is cooling off, and uh, the, again in the Cold War there is it's an allegory uh, for the, the Cold War and a, and actually a fairly direct one in many regards um, for the Cold War as as I grew up with it and as I experienced it as an intelligence officer, and a lot of that finds its way into the book. And uh, as that war uh, cools down, Jason and Kit are, uh, uh, are faced uh, with the prospect of doing something that's not very exciting because they've been, they've been basically a special ops duo partnership uh, up until this time. And, uh, and so they come apart uh, because of that. And uh, and because Jason is uh, is called back to his homeworld, a dangerous place for him to be as a uh, as a military operative, intelligence operative for uh, for Earth, and he's called back there because his uh, the, his adoptive mother uh, is is dying, and of course that's a as we find out that's a ruse uh, to lure him back there, uh, and the reason for that goes even deeper and probably beyond what we want to get into here
2: yeah so So, a lot of a lot of action character driven action science fiction with um with military aspects now your new book um which will be out in january 2017 um i have to admit i haven't read it yet um tony was editing it my boss tony weiskopf um although it is on my list for very very soon um uh, Tony was talking it up at the DragonCon Roadshow last weekend. It sounds very cool. Uh, what can you tell us about The Golden Gate?
3: The Golden Gate is, uh, is as you say, it's a, it's a near-future book. Um, if, if people, uh, for example, look up online, you can see the, uh, uh, the cover of the book. It's uh, in the uh, pre-order pages, uh, uh, either at Bain or at, uh, at Amazon, And uh, the cover looks a lot like a a very slightly futuristic uh, uh, James Bond story with uh, uh, a fellow in a tuxedo on the cover. But uh, it is definitely, uh, it's got a science fiction stinger in its tail. It It is a book that is about a terrorist attack on the Golden Gate Bridge in the way that Jurassic Park is a book about a theme park accident and uh so you get into a, a a number of other things but i think this book has the potential to uh to appeal to not only to the science fiction audience uh and the people who've enjoyed my other books but also to to a broader audience that might might pick up a thriller like the da vinci code or like uh uh, like Jurassic Park, and uh, and the story basically does in fact revolve around the uh, 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 an apparent terrorist attack on the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, which uh, and, the, and, a, and a bomb which ends up killing apparently deliberately only one person, and but that one person happens to be the world's richest man, and it's rumored that. He was about to make true the proposition that the first person who will live to be the age of 1,000 is already alive today. Now, the important thing to know about that premise is that, in fact, in the last couple of years, and this is what excited me to treat this subject in in a novel, in the last couple of years, it's become uh no longer a silly thing to say that the first person to live to be a thousand may already be alive today. Uh, Google, a couple of years ago, announced that it was investing $1.5 billion in a subsidiary called Calico, the California Life Company, to investigate and to develop uh, the technology of just... Uh, curing aging like we would cure any other disease so that it might indeed be possible for there to be genuine um, expansions in the human lifespan far beyond uh, what we currently think is is even in the realm of possibility. And uh, so the book gets into a lot of that, but it does it in a way uh, where you're in the you're in the hip pocket of of uh, two people thrown together uh, 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 an iraq war vet and uh and a very uh, uh liberal leaning uh journalist uh female journalist and uh and their search for the truth wow so,
2: okay. oh, cool sounds a little bit like electric Horseman with the fountain of youth and guns um, <laughs> That's, I don't know if that's a good. One.
3: That's. A, a, that's. We'll. We'll talk about that another time because there's. There's. There, there's a lot that's. Uh, that's. That's. Uh, very accurate about that. So
2: um, tell us a little bit. I find your civilian background fascinating as well. Um, you're a lawyer, and a geologist.
3: Yeah, I've been uh yeah, I I was a geologist uh that was uh th- they say that uh geology's not a real science. They also say that uh, uh engineers will tell you that a geologist uh, petroleum engineers will tell you that a geologist is simply an engineer who couldn't do the math. And uh and that pretty much describes me. I'm more of a, I'm more of a liberal arts guy, but uh, I was very interested in geology. I liked dinosaurs as well as the next kid, and uh, and I got into geology. Uh, had the uh, good fortune to uh, to do some work in uh, in hard rock mining geology in southwestern Alaska and in uh, in West Texas. Uh then uh, after that, after some time in the military, I, uh, or I well, concurrent with, uh, with uh, some time in the military, uh, got a law degree and uh, worked as an international energy lawyer. So I, I got around to uh, places in Latin America and the Middle East and all, all over the place uh, and bumped into a, a lot of people, a lot of obscure places like Pakistan that are less obscure today. Than they were then, and
2: uh, you were at one point working for the for the evil Coke. <laughs> brothers, <right? laughs> okay. You're the general counsel for that. Yeah, so. I uh, I
3: I don't uh, I don't go out of my way to advertise I'm joking it about because because evil. it uh, no it, that no, but that's a that's a fair that's a fair mischaracterization uh, and one that's made frequently. But yes, indeed, uh, I uh, will without uh, any hesitation tell you that uh, I was a general counsel for a company called Koch Exploration Company, which is the oil and gas finding arm of the company called Koch Industries, which is, depending on how you measure things, the largest private corporation in the United States and the source of the uh, fortune uh, made by the what the media refers to as the Koch brothers, Charles and David Coke, and, uh, and for 15 years I, I did, in fact, uh, uh, serve as a as an attorney and uh, and uh, came to know Charles Coke uh, fairly well. And uh, he is a he is a very smart guy and a very nice guy in my experience. And uh, it was a it was a good good place to raise our kids and to do some some useful and important work
2: cool. so what um, um what are you working on now what's what's your writing project that's on uh your?
3: well i'm uh, i'm actually contracted with bain for another book and uh i i think uh it's uh it's one that's i've had on my mind for for quite a quite a long time um It will be cast, again, it will be uh, more of a uh, contemporary thriller format book and not a space opera. uh, The working title is My Enemy's Enemy, and it concerns um, two things. In the present, it concerns uh, the efforts by uh, Arab terrorists to Uh, place a working nuclear weapon within the United States. Uh, And at the same time, uh, it also threads together the story of the German, uh, the the Nazi, uh, A-bomb project. Uh, And one of the important things about it, and the thing that, that was kind of a germ of it for me, was the uh, the situation of the Nobel Prize-winning physicist uh, Werner Heisenberg, uh, who uh, known for the so-called Heisenberg uncertainty principle, Heisenberg during the uh, Second World War was in charge of what was actually called the Uranium Club, which was a an abortive uh, German a bomb project, and that was the the uh, the catalyst for Einstein to recommend to Franklin Roosevelt that we better get ourselves an atomic bomb because if the Germans get it first, we all in a lot of trouble. And uh, and Heisenberg, some people Heisenberg's role as head of that project has been very murky over the over the decades. It's not been clear. Some people who wish to make him out a hero say that he slow-played the, uh, the A-bomb project because he was a brilliant physicist and surely must have known that it was doable. And goodness knows the Nazis never met a weapon system they didn't like. So uh, it didn't really make, it, it struck me and it struck a lot of people that it, that it didn't make sense that Hitler would not, uh, fund uh, or develop an atomic bomb because a bunch of Jewish physicists told him it was too hard. And uh, and so then the question's always been, well, did Heisenberg actually, uh, was he actually this heroic figure or not? Uh, history says no. History says, uh, at the risk of going into too much detail about this, uh, after the war, Heisenberg and, uh, and a number of other prominent German physicists were, were taken to a, an English country house uh, where British intelligence, uh, which of course was bugged to beat the band. And, uh, and when the Americans, uh, and then this was after year, the European War had been won, but Japan uh, had not yet surrendered. And when, when the German scientists received the news that the Americans had detonated an atomic bomb. Uh, Of course they discussed it among themselves. And basically the probable takeaway from that is that Heisenberg was genuinely flabbergasted. He genuinely thought that it took ten times, it would take ten times as much uranium, because he had made a math error. He thought it would take ten times as much uranium as it actually took to make a nuclear bomb. And he thought that was just, you know, a totally unmanageable amount. And so that was uh, so that was the truth of it. But it occurred to me, wouldn't it have been a great story if there had been, if there had been a guy who had been that guy, who had been the Heisenberg that people wanted him to be? And uh, so that formed some of the backstory of that book.
2: Well, that sounds very cool. I'm really looking forward to, to that one. Well, um, we have been talking with Robert Butner, creator of the Orphan's Legacy series, which includes Overkill, Undercurrents, and Balance Point, as well as a new novel coming out in January, The Golden Gate, um, which is not part of the series and is a really cool um, science fiction near-future thriller I think we're really looking forward to. Bob, thank you so much for stopping by the offices here and
3: speaking with us. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me, Tony. It's always a pleasure
2: Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend, the cyber-spy Adele Mundy. The only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Corsera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry. Of David Drake's The Sea Without a
0: Shore. Chapter 8 Xenos on Cinnabar Adele stepped back and looked critically at the row of clothing arranged neatly on her bed in Chatsworth Minor. The two bulkiest items were a second-class uniform, her greys, and a civilian suit of the highest quality, in case she had to appear as Lady Mundy. She did not expect to wear either garment when visiting a mining world as a civilian. She certainly hoped that she did not wear either. Adele was used to living with very little in the way of personal possessions. She could have gotten along quite comfortably with a set of clothing sufficient to satisfy local propriety, the pistol she normally carried in her left tunic pocket, and her personal data unit. She didn't really need the pistol, She felt more comfortable armed, and the pistol had saved her life and the lives of her colleagues on a number of occasions. But comfort wasn't something Adele Mundy expected from life. Adele could even do without the data unit. On balance, though, she would rather die than to live without the data unit. Well, neither should be necessary. The data unit projected an attention signal as a fist-sized ball of red light 30 inches in front of Adele's nose. She took the unit out and saw that Bernice Sand was calling. Rather than hold the discussion as a text conversation as she normally would, Adele said, Adele Mundy speaking. As best as Adele could remember, Mistress Sand had never before called her directly. Their meetings had always been arranged discreetly by third parties. Adele supposed that the use of cutouts had been chosen for security's sake. That meant either that this call wasn't anything to do with the Republic's business, or that it was a sudden crisis, or both, of course. Monday, said Mistress Sand, my son went out two hours ago. I learned from the attendant of his quarters that he had said that as a matter of ethics, he needed to inform Captain Sorley that his ship would no longer be required. Rickard wasn't a prisoner here, of course. She's probably regretting that now, Adele thought, which was silly, of course. Mother or not, Mistress Sand was not the sort to imprison her son because he had become ethical. Adele's own parents would not have had any hesitation about imprisoning their children if their own principles required it. Her mother would have sacrificed things she held of more importance than her daughters if it would bring about the victory of the common people. The common people, under the enlightened leadership of Esme Rolf Mundy and her associates in the popular party, of course, Lucius Mundy's guiding principle was as starkly simple as the barrel of a gun. He would become speaker by whatever means were available. He wouldn't have regarded imprisoning his bookish elder daughter as a sacrifice if it advanced his agenda. Just before I called you, Sand continued, a pair of porters arrived with a handcart and a note from Rickard saying that he was moving out. I was to give his luggage to the porters. There was only the little he'd brought from Corsera and a few suits that I'd bought him to make him presentable while he was here in Zeno's. The note was in your son's writing, Adele said. Tovera had appeared in the doorway, silent and emotionless. She had listening devices all over Chatsworth Minor. Yes, said San. When asked in the correct fashion, the porter said that they were to take the luggage to the dancing girl, which I gather is a tavern. Money was a sufficient inducement. I sent them off with a luggage. All right, said Adele. She was looking at the address of the dancing girl, an establishment near Portinga Harbor. There was no imagery available, which irritated her, but wouldn't really matter. I'll discuss this with my colleagues and we'll deal with it. She thought for a further eye blink, too swiftly for the hesitation to register with the other party. Mr. Sand, she said. Keep your people clear of the area. They would complicate matters. Good day. Six and Hog are packing in his suite, Tovera said quietly. Miranda is there because they're going out tonight. As Adele passed her on the way out the door, Tovera smiled and said, I suppose we're going out too. Adele shrugged. Dockside taverns were out of her range of experience. Daniel would make the decisions this time. His door opened off the next landing down. She rapped on the panel and said, Daniel, a word. The door whipped open. Come in, said Daniel, wearing his greys. Both couches in the sitting room were covered with clothing. Can you convince Hogg that I won't need my dress whites on a voyage to Corsera? Miranda, wearing an attractive suit of pink and gray, sat on a chair. In her lap was a cape, gray on the outside with a pink lining. She was dressed for any gathering short of a dress ball, and her vivacity would probably carry her through even that. She smiled pleasantly at Adele. Whereas Daniel's servant had a truculent look, he stood arms akimbo with his fists clenched on his hips. No, said Adele, I can't, though of course you're right. As she spoke, she realized that the question had been meant rhetorically. When Adele's mind was on other things, she had a tendency to deal with statements at face value. Her mind was usually on other things. Cleveland went to see Captain Sorley and the dancing girl at Portinga Harbor, Adele said. She realized that Daniel had held his tongue for her, waiting for her to explain her visit now that he'd seen her expression. He just sent for his luggage, a handwritten note. Everything in that part of town is a dive, Hogg said, his expression changing subtly. I think I may have been there, Daniel said, his eyes focused on things beyond the present room. In my second year with Fessenden, because his brother-in-law was a ship's captain and we hoped to touch him for a loan, The lines of his face sharpened. Which we did, enough to get extremely drunk on at least, he said. Adele, how recently did this happen? Cleveland has been gone for over two hours, she said. The porters to take the luggage just left Cleveland house. Right, what I'd hoped, said Daniel, nodding. Hog, you and I will fetch the boy immediately. I'll wear these. He pinched the seam of his greys. They were a new set, a proper male counterpart to Miranda's suit. To show sorely that he's dealing with gentlemen, not dockside trash who can be shanghaied without repercussions. The sooner the better, I think, before they settle down. I'll come along, said Adele. She patted the closure over the data unit in her pocket. It will be a new experience. Hogg and Daniel traded looks. Uh, Adele, Daniel said. I'd really rather you not. I don't expect trouble. Hogg and I will go in and come back with a boy before Sorley knows what's happening. And I know that the Zenos dock sides can be rough, but people aren't shot here the way that can happen on some places we've landed. That isn't something I want to change, frankly. Adele looked at Daniel, then at Hogg, and back to Daniel. They know the environment and think that I'd be in the way. All right, she said. Thank you, Daniel said in relief. Come along, Hog. Darling, this to Miranda over his shoulder as he started down the stairs. I'll be back for dinner, I swear I will. The front door banged. Boys off on an adventure, Adele thought, without me. She took out her personal data unit. She planned to inform Mistress Sand about the situation, but that would wait. Aloud, but without looking up from her work to the girl standing transfixed with her cape in her hands, Adele said, Miranda, do you have a more pedestrian change of clothing here? The nearest tram stop was half a block from the dancing girl. Daniel had plenty of time to size the place up as he walked toward it. Daniel was striding briskly. Hogg was a half step behind him and to the side, shambling rather than properly walking. Hogg covered the ground, and though it didn't matter here, he was just as quiet as he would have been in the Bantry Woodlands. We better not stay long inside, said Hogg. It looks like it's going to fall down the next time somebody inside farts. It's quite an interesting building, Hogg, Daniel said. They walked in the center of the street, which was reasonably clean because a thunderstorm the previous evening had washed the garbage down the storm drains and into the nearby harbor. It may be as much as a thousand years old. In another part of Zenos, it would be on the historic register and protected from demolition. I said what I said, grunted Hogg. The dancing girl was in the middle of the block. All the buildings here had originally been freestanding, but with the years they had sagged outward in the middle so that they now touched one another and could only bulge farther toward the street. The dancing girl's sign was a wooden silhouette hanging by two rings above the sidewalk. The right leg above the knee had split off along the grain in past years, and it had been decades, if not centuries, since the paint had been renewed. The sashes of the bay window covering one side of the front, the door and its jams filled the left side, had small panes. They were protected by chain-link fencing and a steel frame rather than fancier grillwork. The ancient timber posts had bowed but showed no signs of breaking, and the fabric of the walls must have been mesh covered with something either flexible or easily renewed. Originally, that would have been mud under plaster. Mud probably remained the choice because nothing was cheaper. Men and a few prostitutes loitered on the street in small groups. Most of them were standing, but boxes and an overturned bucket provided seats for a few. Two men leaned against the dancing girl's window grate. All the onlookers followed Daniel and Hogg with their eyes, but no one spoke. Daniel nodded to the pair in front of the tavern, much the way he would have acknowledged Bantry tenants who caught his eye from a distance. Hogg stepped past him and pushed open the door, scanning the tavern's interior with his right hand balled in the pocket of his loose jacket. Daniel entered, but until the door swung closed behind him, he watched the pair on the sidewalk out of the corner of his eye. The barman looked at him without emotion. Four male spacers sat dicing on a circular table while a woman standing beside them watched. Two more spacers, one wearing a saucer hat with a circle of gold braid, sat in a corner banquette. A staircase with a central landing angled upward between the banquette and the end of the bar. Removed from this place and refurbished, the stairs would probably be worth a great deal to a recently wealthy merchant who wanted to buy antiquity for his new townhouse. Captain Sorley? Daniel said pleasantly to the man with a saucer hat. There were two public houses in Bantry, laborers' taverns, neither of them fancy. One still had a floor of rammed earth covered with rushes from the banks of Hoppy Creek. The rushes weren't replaced as often as they might have been, and the clientele of both houses included farmers just in from the fields and wearing lugged boots. Daniel didn't expect ferns and soft music in a tavern. That said, There wasn't a pig run in Bantry as foul as the floor of the dancing girl. There seemed to be a layer of brick beneath the slime. Unlike the street outside, it wasn't sluiced clean by rainstorms, nor was it cleaned in any other fashion. The stink suggested there was excrement as old as the building itself. Who the bloody hell are you? sorely said. He was middle-aged, short, and could have looked trim if he'd made any effort. As it was, he was scruffy. Though Sorley remained seated, the man with him in the banquette stood up. I'm Captain Daniel Leary, Daniel said, walking toward the stairs. I've come to fetch Master Rickard Cleveland to a business meeting. Well, he's not here, Sorley said. The men at the circular table were getting to their feet. Look, buddy, get your ass out of here now while you can still walk. Daniel nodded acknowledgement and started up the stairs. The treads were as solid as bedrock, whatever the condition of the rest of the tavern. Hey, sorely shouted. Schmidt, he's coming up. Get him, boys. A large man holding an iron pipe the length of his forearm appeared at the top of the stairs. He was wearing an undershirt with a scoop neck. His beard merged indistinguishably with the black hair curling up from his chest. He grinned at Daniel and started down. The bartender had moved to the far corner of the bar he held the mallet he used to set the bung in barrels of beer. But he obviously didn't intend to get involved in the customer's affairs. It's too late to leave now, smartass, sorely said. I've got two of my boys posted in the back alley too. Daniel leaned over the stair railing and gripped the neck of a stoneware bottle from the rack behind the bar. The bartender shouted and stepped forward. Daniel swung the bottle as though the bottom were a stamp, and Schmidt's right instep was the document he was sealing. Schmidt was wearing spacer's boots, soft and flexible, so that they could be worn inside a rigging suit. The bottle didn't break. The bones of the big man's foot did. He screamed and pulled his foot up. Daniel gripped Schmidt's left ankle with his free hand and jerked his leg out from under him. Schmidt crashed down on the base of his spine and bounced to the landing. Daniel broke the bottle over Schmidt's head, bathing both of them with gin. He shoved the unconscious man down the remainder of the staircase. Hogg was at the base of the stairs, facing the rest of Sorley's crewmen with a chair held out in his left hand and his knuckle duster. He hadn't clicked open the knife in his right. As though he really did have eyes in the back of his head, he dodged the slumping Schmidt. Daniel didn't see anybody following Schmidt, so he glanced back at the tap room. The bay window shattered, spraying glass onto the floor. The woven wire screen held for the first blow, but a second boded inward. This time, the frame and wire together flew into the room ahead of one of the spacers who had been loitering outside. His companion had probably been the first object to hit the window. The door burst open ahead of Wochins. The spacers who had hesitated to rush hog on the staircase turned at the new commotion. Wochen swung a length of pressure tubing forehand and backhand smashing two of them down more spacers and former spacers there was Havenmeyer, who'd lost an eye when ice broke from the sissy's rigging on an unnamed world when he happened to be looking upward crowded into the tavern they were carrying clubs of one sort or another generally heavy wrenches two or three of Sorley's men tried to fight and were knocked down immediately they'd be safe enough on the floor because most of the sissies arriving wore spacer's boots, just as Schmidt had. Despite the enthusiastic kicks from the rescue party, the fallen crewmen were unlikely to sustain cracked ribs or ruptured spleens. Powerful lift engines howled in the street. Through the splintered frame of the window, Daniel could see the stilt-legged tender which Mon had begun using as a mobile crane in the shipyard. It would transport people only if the passengers were willing to cling to struts with no protection against weather, wind blast, and buildings that the tender happened to brush. The militia might have complained if they had noticed it. Vehicles in the Zenos airspace were very tightly controlled. But that would have been a problem for another time, involving a judge rather than a coroner. A moment ago, having a squad of militia burst into the tavern would have struck Daniel as a pleasant surprise. One of Sorley's men stumbled backward. Instead of fending him off with a chair, Hogg slugged him behind the ear with a knuckle duster. Daniel grimaced, but the man had brought it on himself when he decided to join a gang of his fellows to beat a couple strangers. The taproom was already crowded. Mon joined his men inside. He didn't carry a club, but he'd pulled on the gauntlets from a rigger suit. The smear on the knuckles of the right glove looked like blood. Adele and Tovera followed Mon, Daniel smiled. I thought she agreed too easily, he thought. It was just as well that Adele had second-guessed him, because he'd misjudged sorely. This business had been a deliberate trap, not just the abduction of Rickard Cleveland, who knew where a treasure might be, but also an attempt to cripple or kill Captain Daniel Leary, whom sorely had decided was his main rival in the treasure hunt. Daniel smiled wryly. This hadn't been one of the times when his reputation had been an advantage. Miranda entered the dancing girl. She was in a dark blue suit, probably the one she wore when she visited Bergen and Associates with him, and she carried a hockey stick. Miranda looked around the confusion. She wasn't looking for him, as Daniel first thought, but rather seeing whether there were any proper targets for her stick. Only when she was sure that opposition had been downed, did she relax and smile at Daniel. Pipe down, Daniel said, using his command voice. Those present were spacers used to obeying orders, at least when they trusted the person giving them. They quieted immediately. The wheezing breaths of Schmidt at the bottom of the stairs, the stoneware bottle had given him a concussion, if not a fractured skull, were the loudest remaining sounds. "wotions" Daniel said in the relative hush. Sorley's got two more in the alley behind here. Right, said son, from beneath the landing where Daniel couldn't see him. He must have come in by a back door. They're going to stay there a while, too. Speaking of Sorley, the merchant captain had apparently ducked under the banquette table. Now that the fighting was over, he was inching upward. He'd lost his hat, and he was bald from his eyebrows to mid-skull. Captain Sorley, Daniel said, I very much hope that we find Master Cleveland unharmed. I'm quite all right, Captain Leary, Cleveland said from the top of the stairs. I- I'm very glad to see you, but I haven't been harmed. Lady Mundy? Yes, said Adele. Her left hand was still in her tunic pocket. I ignored your advice, Cleveland said. He bowed. I apologize for the trouble I caused you and others by my decision. This is the most bloody fun I've had since the sissy lifted from Madison, boomed Evans as he straightened. He'd been wiping the head of his 18-inch adjustable wrench on the dungarees of the spacer he'd knocked down with it. That's probably the opinion of most of the rescue party, Daniel thought, and maybe mine as well. Aloud, he said, we'll escort you to your family home, Cleveland. We'll talk on the way, but I think the Kaisha will be lifting rather sooner than we had discussed. Adele said something in Wochan's ear. Evans and Crick, the bosun ordered. Go up and get his gear. Take it to the Kaisha on the tram, not the bloody tender like we came. Right, said Daniel. Captain Sorley, would you come out here, please? Look, I got a right, Sorley began. He didn't move from his corner behind the round table. Barnes and Dassey grabbed opposite sides of the table. They were bosun's mates and used to working together without signals that anybody else could have seen. They ripped the table from the floor and hurled it into the rack of bottles behind the bar. The bartender ducked with a yelp, saving himself. Wood, bottles, and various liquors sprayed over the tap room. Spacers shouted and laughed. The riggers turned toward Sorley. He threw his hands up and cried, I'm coming. Look, I don't have any fight with you. That much was certainly true. Thank you, Barnes and Dasi, Daniel said. But you can step back now. Captain Sorley, I'm asking you in the presence of these witnesses, including Adele, who was certainly recording the whole affair if you renounce any right or interest in Rickard Cleveland and any matters he may have discussed with you. Yes, yes, sorely said. Go on, rob me like you're going to do anyway. I don't care. Then I think we're done here, Daniel said pleasantly. Master Cleveland will take you home now. Tovera and I will escort Master Cleveland, Adele said crisply. You have a dinner date with your fiancé, I believe. Yes, Daniel said, I do. He looked at his uniform. He'd split several seams, in particular, the crotch. And something had splashed, gin diluting Schmidt's blood, probably, to cover most of his right side. Ah, Miranda stepped close and hugged him. Daniel realized for the first time that she was trembling. We'll eat in, she said. I told the cook before Adele and I left the townhouse that we probably would. Right, Daniel repeated, licking his dry lips. Reaction was beginning to hit him too. We're done here then. Not quite, master, said Hogg. This shitworm, he thumbed towards sorely. Tried to kill us both or the next thing to it. I'm not going to dirty my hands on a man who's too cowardly to fight, Daniel said. He was trying to control his breathing. He wanted to gulp air through his mouth and nostrils both. We'll leave now. I never minded getting my hands dirty, Hogg said. He punched Sorley in the stomach with a knuckle duster. Sorley crumpled to the floor with only a wheeze. Hogg kicked him in the ribs. Or my boots, he said. I'm a peasant, you know. Hogg grinned. Now we're ready, he said, sauntering toward the gaping doorway.
2: That was another entry in our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Christopher Rocchio, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz.
1: And a psychically linked chorus line of 11-ton grezen kickstepping to the song from the Moss Eisley Cafe.
2: The grezen are Bob. Uh, Bob Butner's monsters in his books go on, yes <laughs> and a
1: round of fireworks laced with moonbeams and meteor defense lasers for Robert Butner, creator of the Orphans Legacy series and upcoming SF thriller The Golden Gate
2: please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars